0: Hey, Brandon. Hey, buddy. Good to see you, dude. Can I have a high five? Yeah, buddy, thanks. <laughs> we are going to be in 1 John chapter 1 this morning, and it's going to be a little bit similar to what we did last week. We're in our third Sunday of go, of the word go, thinking about taking uh, what, we, what we do in here, taking our Christian faith, our walk with Jesus, and going out into the world, hence the word go. Hence, all the arrows everywhere. I love it. I love it. Hopefully, you're, you're getting that wrapped in your brain. So uh, we're looking at Go, and this morning, similar a little bit to last week, but I want to take it a step further, I want to give you some, some resources maybe or some approach in, in, uh, in preaching the good news, and hopefully that's what we do every week in a sermon is that you hear some good news that you can carry with you. Uh, if the Bible's not good news, if Jesus isn't good news, again, I think we're doing something wrong. And so, if uh, we're, we're taking this good news, and I want to give you some nuggets, some uh, resources this morning to think about how, as we go, what is the good news that we carry with us? What is it? What is that message? What is at the heart of it? And I think in 1 John, as I was doing some studying here in 1 John 1, John is trying to do the same thing. He is up against a challenge in his church where people are really starting to wrestle with who is God? What is this Christianity thing really about? What is the Jesus message? What does it mean to follow him really? Because there's some other people who have come in, similar to what we saw Paul addressing last week in our sermon, some people have come in and started teaching some alternative things. And so some of that is creeping in, and some of that has enticed some of the believers. Some of those are nice ideas. So they started to, to get a little bit off track, and John is saying, come back to some of the basics Come back to some of the basics. Come back to some of the basics. And John is writing, in order that. And here's the, here's the key thing that John is doing, and, and I'm going to get to what he is countering, what he is attacking or, or trying to deal with in his community. He is trying to address the fact that we need to take what we believe and have it change our lives. Take what we believe and have it actually change our lives. You'll see that John talks about, uh, he, he's the one who heightens Jesus' command to love one another. That you'll really know if people are following Jesus, if they're loving one another, if they're loving other people, that's John's basic thing. And so it's this acted out faith. It's a faith in action that he is after. And that's what I want to get after this morning as well. So 1 John 1, and I'm going to go all the way through 2, 2, all the way through 2, 2, and we're just going to walk through it. So if you want to have it open as a reference, that would be great. So verses 1 through 4 here are a little bit of an introduction, It's a little bit of an introduction to where Paul is going in this letter to his community. And you'll see throughout this that John has a pastor's heart. His heart is breaking for these people that he wants to see, know the truth, and live the truth of Jesus. Live the good news. And so verses 1 through 4 of this sort of this introduction. But I realize it's not the kind of introduction that you want to skip. Sometimes you get a book, and that book has the summary of the entire... This really annoys me, so if you're an author... You get that book and the in the introduction you're like, "Oh, this is really interesting. I should get into this introduction." And it basically tells you what the whole book is going to be about, and you're like, "You know, I'm intending to read the whole book." So so thanks for wasting my time. That's not this kind of introduction. John is not doing that in this introduction. Right away, he grabs the reader's attention, and he tells them, I I want to let you in on who I'm talking about, what I'm talking about here. And he says, I'm talking about that which was from the beginning, that which we heard. And again, that from the beginning language. He's talking about from the beginning as in Genesis from the beginning. That one, that who was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen And the language here. I started investigating the language here in Greek. It's really saying not like I just saw it with my eyes, but it's investigative language. We have investigated. We have seen we have touched, and this word touched, if you remember Thomas, it's the same as Thomas poking his fingers into Jesus. I won't believe it until I touch this. And John is saying, the one who was from the beginning, we have heard him, we have seen him, we have touched. And that word touched is a little bit like we have probed at the evidence. Dare I say, we have groped at the evidence. That's the kind of language he's using here. That this is raw, this is tangible, this is real. Jesus, who was from the beginning, came in the flesh and we hung out with him. And we want to tell you about it. We want to tell you about it. And he keeps going, he says, this is what we are proclaiming, we are preaching, witnessing, testifying to, this one who is the word of life. The word of life that was with the Father, again saying, yes, the one who was from the beginning of the world. That's the one I'm going to tell you about. That's why we can't just skip this introduction and say, okay, get on with it, John. Tell us what you want us to do. He's trying to make a point that he has hung out with. He's trying to remind us. He's trying to remind his congregation. He hung out with the one who was with the Father from the beginning of time. And if you want to know what it means to hang out with him, listen up. That's what he's trying to get across here. That's right, he says, we saw the word of life, we heard the word of life, and now is where he has this pastor's heart, where he says, and we now want to invite you to have fellowship with us, and not just with us, he says, but with the Father and the Son, fellowship with God. So pay attention, because he says, man, and this is what I love about this whole section, this introduction, He basically says, he is not complete. It made me think back to that uh, Jerry Maguire movie. You complete me. Um, He's basically saying, my life is not complete. My ministry is not complete. I will not be satisfied until you, my congregation, these people that I love, until you are fully in the fellowship, until you are fully into the community, until you too have heard, have seen, have touched Jesus For yourself, I'm not complete. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to rest. I'm not just going to say, oh, that was good enough. I did my thing. No, his heart is breaking for his community, saying it would make our joy complete. It would make our communities so joyful if you would also respond and come into the fellowship. I want to go back a little bit, though, this word of life. I love this description. John likes to call Jesus life and light. Refer to him as life and light. And light, and these two images that John loves to use are things we can't ignore. And and I love this, that in Jesus, there is life. Jesus himself in John 10 says that he has come to give life to the full, abundant life, full life, thriving life. And it's interesting to me, it caught my attention this time, John describing Jesus as the word of life, saying, I want to introduce you to the word of life. I've seen him, I've touched him. I've hung out with him, and I want you to know him too, because I feel like so many people, so many of us are chasing after life, real life, abundant life, full life. We're all chasing after that, and we throw money away, and we throw time away, resources away. We make mistakes along the way, searching after life. Can you relate to that at all? Chasing after life. Real, where is real life? Where, is, where can I really feel alive? We're all chasing after that. And John is saying, I have the answer. I've seen it. I've touched him. I've heard him. Come on, nothing would make me happier than you to experience it too. Come on. And then if he, as if he anticipates the question, is saying like, come on, the community is open. Come on in. As if he anticipates the question of somebody saying like, but what's this community all about, John. Here's where we get into John, the rest of the text. So the introduction is over and John starts going, here's what the community is about. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And John starts to kind of get real with people here. He says, God is light. So you can't claim to be a part of the fellowship and continue living in the darkness. Instead, come into the light where we can fellowship together, be together where the blood of Jesus purifies us from our sin. He gets real with them here and says, you can't pretend like you're going to find life out there on your own. Come in here. Come into the community. Come into the light. I love that image as if God is shining a giant spotlight and everybody's outside of it. And he's saying, come on into the light. Come on in. We found it. And, and, And in that light is real life, so come on in. Come check it out. But he gets real with them with this whole uh, purifies us from our sin language, from your sin. So you do want that life. And I I have a feeling that people are saying like, whoa, 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 John, I'm good with all this uh, light of the world, word of life, but what's this business about my sin? This kind of a conversation I hear going on in our our, uh, culture right now is sin I'm cool with everything else, but once you start talking about this thing called sin, this category called sin, now you're, now church, you're, you know, now pastor, you've crossed the line. Leave me be. Leave me alone. Stay out of my business. I found this out a, a few years ago. Uh, I, was, I was working with some students, and I, I, this reminded me of uh, what John was probably going through, because John here, to give you a little context, I'll get back to my story about my students, John is countering. A false teaching that's starting to creep into the church called Gnosticism. And if, you, if you've heard of this before, Gnosticism, I'll just boil it down to two things. Gnosis is the Greek word for wisdom. So Gnosticism was built on one, right thinking. If you know the right things, if you have the special knowledge, if you have the right ideas, you're good to go. It's a very head knowledge, idea based thing. If you have the wisdom, you're good. That's all that matters. And then the next thing, part of that then is spiritual is good, physical bad. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body because it's about spiritual things. So it doesn't matter so much that you're living out your faith or doing things according to God's will as long as you know the right things and can agree intellectually to the right things. And this is what he's countering here with his church. And so he's trying to make this point that Jesus was in the flesh. I saw him. Flesh not bad. God put on flesh came and walked among us. But if you're countering that, what happens is some people, this concept of sin then becomes a little bit like sin. No, no, no. I know the right things. I'm good. Let's not talk about sin then because I know the right things. I'm good. I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm good. And And I started to realize as I was looking at this text that I have encountered that same idea. With students that I worked with. I'll never forget. Uh, I was early on at my church and I, uh, at my last church, and I was, uh, didn't know what to do with these kids that I inherited. And so I said to them, "What do you want to talk about? Let's, what, just open it up. What do you want to talk about?" And they said, "Well we just want to know, you know about like, the, the, the basic things I think the church's supposed to teach about. Like, we want to know about like sex and drugs and pornography and dating, and we want to know what the church says about those things. It's like, OK, I can do this. We can do that." So I thought that it was a brilliant idea. To start with talking about sin, I thought this was just a brilliant idea because I thought, you know, I'm going to let you know that a lot of these things I fit because of the way I read the Bible and understand faith, I fit into a category called sin. And so we're going to talk about it from that angle. And I thought though, because again, this was just a really brilliant idea by a young pastor that we should, we should define sin. This would be really helpful for them. And so I first pulled out the confirmation answer, you know? Sin is all in thought, word, and deed, contrary to the will of God. And they all kind of like, yeah, we remember memorizing that in confirmation. Thanks, that's really helpful. And so I was like, okay, they're not really getting this. What else could I use? So I said, you know, sin is like something you regret. And this hand shot up. I was like, okay, uh, yes, what would you like to say right now? We're not supposed to regret anything. I was like, Huh? We're not supposed to regret anything was the answer. And all the heads are nodding in the room. And I think I'm in big trouble here. So they're all nodding and they're saying like, yeah, 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 no, we're young. We're young now. And the message for young people now is you're not supposed to regret anything until you're older. Save that stuff for when you're older. Then things will really impact you. But right now, you're just supposed to have fun and be a kid and live your life and make mistakes. No regrets. And I remember me and the leaders kind of looking at each other like, what do we do now? What do you do now? Because how do you have a conversation about these things that we would categorize biblically and through the tradition of faith as sin if, if a group is saying, no, 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 no. no. Let's not go there. Let's not talk about sin. It really threw us off. It totally threw me off. And, and it just didn't make much sense. And, and I thought this was a little bit interesting and really scary because all of the kids agreed, and it, it made me just think, what do you do? What does a pastor do when the congregation looks at you? And that time my congregation was these 15 students and said, no regrets, no sin. Someday I might think about that, but not today. No thanks. Continue on, Pastor. It was a little rough. John writes to his congregation, and this is where I really think this, there's some parallels to what John was dealing with and maybe culturally what we're seeing today. How did John address a similar situation where people were saying, like, uh-uh, pastor, don't get into my sin stuff. I've got the right knowledge. I'm good to go. We're good. Let's not, let's not meddle with my life, okay? Just no regrets. Leave me alone. John writes, if we, here's where he really gets personal. If we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, that's not what I said to these kids, because that I don't think would have been very pastoral. But in this letter, he gets serious. And I, and I found myself, as I cared for these kids, wondering how do you communicate timeless truth to them when the language is almost a barrier. The things that I grew up... Just taking for granted that we would talk about sin, and here's this category, and sin is all a thought word indeed contrary to the will of God, and you know, it's something you regret, something you feel guilty about, all of that was kind of thrown out the window. And what do you do? What do you do in that? And so John says, Hey, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. And then John brings his community to a place though where then he says, but if we confess our sins. God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, I think this is the part of the message that sometimes we forget. We forget to preach to people. We forget to tell people. I shouldn't use the word preach because hopefully you're not out there preaching at people all the time. But, but it's part of the message that sometimes we forget. Sometimes I, I can say that, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later too, that early on in ministry, kind of stop at that, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Don't deceive yourself. You're a sinner. And forget that second line that says, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. I think John is pastoring his church through this challenging idea where they're saying, I don't think there's sin, John. He's saying, no, there is. Just saying, "Eh, no regrets doesn't eliminate regret. It doesn't work that way. Just saying, I refuse to be guilty doesn't eliminate guilt. At least I've never found that to be true. Just deciding in your mind that you're not going to deal with these things isn't living in reality. And so John is saying, don't be deceived. There is evil in the world. There is sin. There is brokenness. There is pain. There is sorrow. Whatever you want to call it, there is a severed relationship between you and God. And you you can't deceive yourself. You have to own up to that. But the good news is, That in owning up to that and in saying, yes, there is brokenness, yes, there is sin, yes, there is whatever category you want to call it, Jesus has come alongside of us to forgive us and purify us. And this is what John is offering. John is saying, come into the fellowship so you can receive that forgiveness. Come into the fellowship so that you can be cleansed of these sins, forgiven of these sins you know what's so interesting to me is I found then over the years working with students, and I find this to be true with a lot of, not just students, but with other people too, is that the language, the language of sin didn't always communicate, but what did was broken relationship or severed relationships. And so with that in mind, what were they looking for? They were looking for the very thing John is offering, looking for community, a place of belonging, a place where they could bring all the junk in their life and say, will you still accept me? even though I have all of this? Or do I have to get all of that taken care of or pretend that I don't have anything in order to be a part of this? Can I come? Can I be accepted? Can I be a part of this fellowship? And I think the really amazing thing is that John is saying here that that's exactly what Jesus offers. The go things are falling down. Maybe this is a bad sermon series, I don't know. Is it a sign? I think, though, what John is inviting them into is this very thing, to recognize that you can be a part of this community, warts and all, with all your baggage. And Jesus, when you come with all you've got, Jesus will purify you if you confess your sins. And then this last part, he says, my dear children, again, going back to that language of just the pastor's heart for his people, my dear children, I'm writing so you won't sin. That's his hope that you won't sin. But if you do, he says, and here's the good news. We have an advocate with the Father. The atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours but for the sins of the whole world, John says. And unless, you know, again, I think sometimes we get caught up in, oh, but if you keep sinning, if you're sinning, if you know, let's cast people out. No. The message of the church is we have an advocate. We have one who has gone before us. We have one who has gone to the Father who stands in the gap for us. I think what's really interesting here is the language, again, the language here is the same of the advocate is the same Jesus uses describing the Holy Spirit as one who comes alongside, as one who counsels, as one who is really with us in the journey Sometimes, again, sometimes, instead, we have this picture of Jesus standing before God, the angry judge. And we've got to get rid of that. We've got to get rid of this courtroom mentality that God is a judge with a gavel, and he's sitting there cross-armed, furrowed brow, and he is so angry with all of us, but thank heavens, Jesus is there to protect us from God. We've got to get rid of that idea. It's there. It's, I, I, I still see it out there. I still hear it, and I, I think I, I just... How do we get rid of that idea that that God, we need protection from God? The way I read the story is that God sent Jesus for us, not to protect us from himself, but to bring us back into relationship. All of this, uh, I want to give you this, and that's why these chairs are up here, this final image, this final kind of picture as everything continues to fall down behind me. It's wonderful. (laughs) That's not the image I wanted to give you. It's okay. I wanted to give you this final image of something that maybe um, will help you, which I have started to find helpful in trying to communicate essentially what John is trying to communicate. How do we take this good news and communicate it with others? It led me to discover uh, what Orthodox theologian Brad Jersak calls the beautiful gospel. And that the tradition from which he operates in the Orthodox Church, uh, they use the biblical language of sin as sickness. And if you start to really use the biblical language of sin as sickness, then the church becomes a hospital. The church is not a courtroom. We don't talk in legal courtroom things that I am somehow your judge, but the, the church is a hospital, and it should be a hospital of healing the sickness of sin, that it's a healing place, not a punishing place. I, I found uh, this somewhere where uh, Jersak using this metaphor of sin as a sickness, and I put this out on Facebook for anybody who's following us on Facebook. He said, you cannot punish a disease out of anyone. Isn't that an interesting thing? If sin is a disease, if the Bible describes sin as a disease... Why then would we use, and the courtroom language is in there in the Bible, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say let's throw that all out entirely, we have to be careful. If sin is a sickness, you wouldn't, if somebody goes to the hospital to be treated for a sickness, you wouldn't say, you know what, actually you need to be put in jail. That's going to be a better place for you. That's how we will get rid of your disease, by sending you to jail. We wouldn't do that. So why then would we treat sinners as if they need a courtroom? He said, if sin is a disease, we don't need a courtroom, we need a hospital. And so we need to kind of embrace this idea that the church then is a hospital, not a judgment room. It's a hospital where we receive people in. And this is the language that I saw as I started to talk to students is that they really wrapped their minds around that. They really loved it that church is family, a hospital, a place of healing, a place of bringing everything you have, all of your junk, and coming and receiving healing. Not a place of judgment. A place where the first thing we do is point out everything that's wrong with somebody. But sometimes church can be that way. And I think it can be that way because, and I will confess, to doing this myself early on in ministry, I think we've got a little sloppy with our gospel presentation. And, and it goes a little something like this, so bear with me, these chairs here, I'm going to try this my best, it's my first crack at this, other than practicing it a couple times. But the, the, the story that I heard growing up went something like this, God the Father, it's supposed to be a white chair, this is as close as I could find a white, but he's going to be silver today, God the Father creates humankind in his image. And the two are in perfect harmony in the garden. But we know the story The story goes that man sins. They turn their back on God. And God, because he's holy and righteous, can't look on man, so he turns his back as well. And now we have a problem. We have a problem. This is the way that this story was conveyed to me as a kid and this is the way I conveyed it in my, my early years of ministry. That we have this problem. But Jesus comes then. God sends Jesus to be man, to be the perfect man to once again have a good relationship with God. And now it's up to us. We, we have a choice in this whether we can uh, accept Jesus and then we, we put on him. We are still unrighteous. We are still unworthy. And we can put on Christ. We can put ourselves into him. We can be in Christ, be a new creation. And in that case, we're in a good, right relationship with God. But if you don't, if you don't, then you're like this and you're back to the beginning, where once again, God can't look at you and you have to be in eternal separation from God. That is the way I, I, I was presented the story as a kid. And there, there's some biblical truth in that. But I came across this, uh, this, this example, this beautiful gospel, and they called it the gospel in chairs. And it really resonated with me thinking about my ministry over the last 12 years and what has communicated to students and how they have understood the love of God the radical grace of God and how I think we can do a better job communicating that going forward. And so the second story, and that's kind of the courtroom, the legal, the legal way. The other one is a restorative, restorative view of atonement, if you will. And in this, it starts the same. That God the Father, who is holy and righteous and pure, creates humankind in his image. Righteous and pure, they're looking at each other. But then we know that man sins and they turn their back. God. But you know what's interesting, and you have to ask yourself as you, as you go through this, what does God do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What does God do? In that situation, what does God do? Does he turn his back on those people? No, he pursues them. He says, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? The very, the very first uh, person who murders, Cain kills Abel, right? Cain kills Abel, he turns his back on him, and what does God do? Cain, where's your brother? Where's your brother? I hear his blood crying out. And then he marks Cain so that nobody can kill him. He stands in front of Cain again. And you can go all the way into the New Testament, and and Jesus is revealing, we are told, the very nature of who God is. And you have a story of a woman, right? A woman who's had four husbands, and now she's living with this one, and he's not really her husband, and everybody in town knows it, and it's kind of messy, and everybody knows she's not living the right way. And what does God do? Does he turn his back on her? No. What does God do? Jesus comes to the well, and she's the first person in the book of John that Jesus reveals his identity as the Messiah to and then you have a tax collector, terrible, terrible tax collector, robbing people of money, certainly turned his back on God, no chance for this guy, scum of the earth and Jesus comes, what does God do? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And the stories go on and on in the Bible of, of what does God do? He takes his place for us. Jesus takes his place for us. Jesus continues to put himself in front of us and this I think is a more beautiful gospel and a more true gospel to what the text shows us rather than this courtroom mentality of don't you dare screw up or that furrowed browed angry judge of a god oh you're in trouble unless Jesus can somehow get in between the two of you but sometimes that's, the, that's the, the way I heard it growing up, the way I understood it growing up. And now I, I've come to this place of realizing that what does God do? He continues to pursue us, God's relentless pursuit of us. When the people of God turn their back, he sent prophets to try to get their attention. That God relentlessly pursues us. Us. And in the end, do we have a choice whether we want to face God or not? Absolutely. We have that choice. Human beings have that choice. But it's, but it's not God. See, the, the, the first story, too, what it does is it pits God against Jesus. It pits the Father against the Son. But we confess that they are one, that God is one. We can't, we can't say they're one if, it, if they're somehow fighting each other or arguing it out or we have to be protected from one or the other. So I think this gives us a more beautiful gospel this image of the advocate, the advocate who stands there alongside of us, stands talking to the Father, not pleading with him, oh God, the Father, don't smite these people. One of my favorite episodes of Malcolm in the Middle, remember that show? Yeah. Dewey goes to church, mom makes him go to church, the little boy, and Dewey's kind of a little crazy. Dewey goes to church and hears that first story that I told, and so he hears that God loves to smite people. That's what God does, and if you're not good, he's going to smite you, and he kind of presses a little bit, and he's like, tell me, like, what? how does he judge? Well, you know, you just can't be too careful, the Sunday school teacher says. Any bad thing you do, he might just smite you, and so Dewey thinks that's pretty cool, actually, and he goes home and gets a magnifying glass and decides he's going to play God with the ants, and so he's standing over the ants, smite you, and I smite you, and I smite you, but this is the image we have, and sometimes... TV shows and movies, they show these things, they reveal these things that we have taught over the years or that we think we understand. And so we have to get back. I mean, what, what would it look like to have a more beautiful gospel where, where the answer is, what does God do in those moments? He comes in front of you. He forgives you. He's always pursuing you. That's what I want to send you out with this morning. I, I pray this morning that as we go from this place, as we go, we would carry with us, that more beautiful gospel of God's relentless pursuit, not only of us, but of everybody in our community. Let's pray. God, this is the radical, scandalous good news that you came to reveal to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You sent your Son to show us that you are for us. You're not shaking your finger at us, furrowed, browed, angry, but that out of your love for us, motivated by your love for humanity, by... For the ones that you created in your image, God, you keep pursuing us. You sent your son for us. Help us to remember that in our conversations with others. To remind them that that the God of the universe is, is in love with them and wants a relationship with them and wants to know them and wants to offer life to anyone who would accept it, anyone who would receive it. Help us, Lord, to embody and preach that gospel, that good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for the closing song?